Section 2 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 2. George Washington, Part 1. He left as fair a reputation as ever belonged to a human character. Midst all the sorrowings that are mingled on this melancholy occasion, I venture to assert that none could have felt his death with more regret than I, because no one had higher opinions of his worth. There is this consolation, though, to be drawn, that while living no man could be more esteemed, and since dead none is more lamented. Washington on the Death of Tilkman Dean Stanley has said that all the gods of ancient mythology were once men, and he traces for us the evolution of a man into a hero, the hero into a demigod, and the demigod into a divinity. By a slow process, the natural man is divested of all our common faults and frailties. He is clothed with superhuman attributes, and declared a being separate and apart, and is lost to us in the clouds. When Greenough carved that statue of Washington that sits facing the Capitol, he unwittingly showed how a man may be transformed into a Jove. But the world has reached a point when to be human is no longer a cause for apology. We recognize that the human in degree comprehends the divine. Jove inspires fear, but to Washington we pay the tribute of affection. Beings hopelessly separated from us are not ours a god we cannot love, a man we may. We know Washington as well as it is possible to know any man. We know him better, far better than the people who lived in the very household with him. We have his diary showing, quote, how and where I spend my time, end quote. We have his journal, his account books, and no man was ever a more painstaking accountant. We have hundreds of his letters and his own copies and first drafts of hundreds of others, the originals of which have been lost or destroyed. From these, with contemporary history, we are able to make up a close estimate of the man, and we find him human, splendidly human. By his books of accounts, we find that he was often imposed upon, and he loaned thousands of dollars to people who had no expectation of paying and in his last will, written with his own hand, we find him cancelling these debts, and making bequests to scores of relatives, giving freedom to his slaves, and acknowledging his obligation to servants and various other obscure persons. He was a man in very sooth. He was a man in that he had in him the appetites, the ambitions, the desires of a man. Stuart, the artist, has said, quote, all of his features were indications of the strongest and most ungovernable passions, and had he been born in the forest, he would have been the fiercest man among savage tribes. But over the sleeping volcano of his temper, he kept watch and ward until his habit became one of gentleness, generosity, and shining simple truth. And behind all, we behold his unswerving purpose and steadfast strength. And so, the object of the sketch will be, not to show the superhuman Washington, the Washington set apart, but to give a glimpse of the man, Washington, who aspired, feared, hoped, loved, and bravely died. 
The first biographer of George Washington was the Reverend Mason L. Weems. If you have a copy of Weems' Life of Washington, you had better wrap it in chamois and place it away for your hairs, for some time it will command a price. Fifty editions of Weems' book were printed, and in its day no other volume approached it in point of popularity. In American literature, Weems stood first. To Weems we are indebted for the hatchet tale, the story of the cold that was broken and killed in the process, and all those other fine romances of Washington's youth. Weems' literary style reveals the very acme of that vicious quality of untruth to be found in the old-time Sunday school books. Weems mustered all the little willy stories he could find, and attached to them Washington's name, claiming to write for, quote, the betterment of the young, end quote, as if in dealing with the young we should carefully conceal the truth. Possibly Washington could not tell a lie, but Weems was not thus handicapped. Under a mass of silly moralizing, he nearly buried the real Washington, giving us instead a priggish punk youth and a Madame Tussaud full-dress general with a waxworks manner and a wooden dignity. Happily, we have now come to a time when such authors as Mason L. Weems and John S. C. Abbott are no longer accepted as final authorities. We do not discard them, but, like Samuel Pepys, they are retained that they may contribute to the gaiety of nations. Various violent efforts have been made in days agone to show that Washington was of, quote, a noble line, end quote, as if the natural nobility of the man needed a reason, forgetful that we are all sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But Burke's peerage lends no light, and the careful, unprejudiced, patient search of recent years finds only the blood of the common people. Washington himself said that, in his opinion, the history of his ancestors, quote, was of small moment and a subject to which, I confess, I have paid little attention, end quote. He had a bookplate, and he had also a coat of arms on his carriage door. The Reverend Mr. Weems has described Washington's bookplate thus, quote, Argent, two-barred gules in chief, three mullets of the second, crest a raven with wings, endorsed proper, issuing out of a ducal coronet, or, end quote. Mary Ball was the second wife of Augustine Washington. In his will, the good man describes this marriage, evidently with a wink, as, quote, my second venture, end quote and it is sad to remember that he did not live to know that his venture made America his debtor. The success of the Union seems pretty good argument in favor of widowers marrying. There were four children in the family, the oldest nearly full-grown when Mary Ball came to take charge of the household. She was twenty-seven, her husband ten years older. They were married March 6, 1731, and on February 22nd of the following year, was born a man-child, and they named him George. The Washingtons were plain, hard-working people, land-poor. They lived in a small house that had three rooms downstairs and an attic, where the children slept, and bummed their heads against the rafters if they sat up quickly in bed. Washington got his sterling qualities from the Ball family and not from the tribe of Washington. George was endowed by his mother with her own splendid health and with all the sturdy Spartan virtues of her mind. In features and in mental characteristics, he resembled her very closely. There were six children born to her in all, 
but the five have been nearly lost sight of in the splendid success of the firstborn. I have used the word Spartan advisedly. Upon her children, the mother of Washington lavished no soft sentimentality. A woman who cooked, weaved, spun, washed, made the clothes, and looked after a big family in pioneer times, had her work cut out for her. The children of Mary Washington obeyed her, and when told to do a thing, never stopped to ask why. And the same fact may be said of the father. The girls wore linsey woolsey dresses, and the boys tore suits that consisted of two pieces, which, in winter, were further added to by hat and boots. If the weather was very cold, the suits were simply duplicated, a boy wearing two or three pairs of trousers instead of one. The mother was the first up in the morning, the last one to go to rest at night. If a youngster kicked off the covers in his sleep and had a coughing spell, she arose and looked after him. Where any sick, she not only ministered to them, but often watched away the long, dragging hours of the night. And I've noticed that these sturdy mothers in Israel, who so willingly gave their lives that others may live, often find when for overwrought feelings by scolding. And I, for one, cheerfully grant them the privilege. Washington's mother scolded and grumbled to the day of her death. She also sought solace by smoking a pipe. And this reminds me that a noted specialist in neurotics has recently said that if women would use the weed moderately, tired nerves would find repose, and nervous prostration would be a luxury unknown. Not being much of a smoker myself, and knowing nothing about the subject, I give the item for what it is worth. All the sterling classic virtues of industry, frugality, and truth-telling were inculcated by this excellent mother, and her strong common sense made its indelible impress upon the mind of her son. Mary Washington always regarded George's judgment with a little suspicion. She never came to think of him as a full-grown man. To her, he was only a big boy. Hence, she would chide him and criticize his actions in a way that often made him very uncomfortable. During the Revolutionary War, she followed his record closely. When he succeeded, she only smiled and said something that sounded like, I told you so, and calmly filled her pipe. When he was repulsed, she was never cast down. She foresaw that he would be made president, and thought, quote, he would do as well as anybody, end quote. Once she complained to him of a house in Fredericksburg. He wrote an answer, gently but plainly, that her habits of life were not such as would be acceptable at Mount Vernon, and to this she replied that she had never expected or intended to go to Mount Vernon, and moreover would not, no matter how much urged. A declination without an invitation, that must have caused the son a grim smile. In her nature was a goodly trace of savage stoicism that took a satisfaction in concealing the joy she felt in her son's achievement. For that her life was all bound up in his, we have good evidence. Washington looked after her wants and supplied her with everything she needed, and, as these things often came through third parties, it is pretty certain she did not know the source. At any rate, she accepted everything quiet as her due, and shows a half-comic ingratitude that is very fine. When Washington started for New York to be inaugurated president, he stopped to see her. She donned a new white cap and a clean apron in honor of the visit, remarking to a neighbor woman who dropped in that she supposed, quote, these great folks expected something a little extra, end quote. 
It was the last meeting of mother and son. She was 83 at that time, and her boy 55. She died not long after. Samuel Washington, the brother two years younger than George, has been described as, quote, small, sandy-whiskered, shrewd, and glib, end quote. Samuel was married five times. Some of the wives he deserted, and others deserted him, and two of them died, thus leaving him twice a sad, lorn widower, from which condition he quickly extricated himself. He was always in financial straits, and often appealed to his brother George for loans. In 1781, we find George Washington writing to his brother John, quote, In God's name, how has Samuel managed to get himself so enormously in debt? End quote. The remark sounds a little like that of Samuel Johnson, who, on hearing that Goldsmith was owing four hundred pounds, exclaimed, quote, Was ever poet so trusted before? End quote. Washington's ledger shows that he advanced his brother Samuel two thousand dollars, to be paid back without interest, end quote. But Samuel's ship never came in, and in Washington's will we find the debt graciously and gracefully discharged. Thornton Washington, a son of Samuel, was given a place in the English army at George Washington's request, and two other sons of Samuel were sent to school at his expense. One of the boys once ran away and was followed by his uncle George, who carried a goodly birch with intent to, quote, give him what he deserved, end quote. But after catching the lad, the uncle's heart melted, and he took the runaway back into favor. An entry in Washington's journal shows that the children of his brother Samuel cost him fully $5,000. Harriet, one of the daughters of Samuel, lived in the household of Mount Vernon, and evidently was a great cross, for we find Washington pleading as an excuse for her frivolity that, quote, she was not brung up right, she has no disposition, and takes no care of her clothes, which are dabbed about in every corner, and the best are always in use. She costs me enough, end quote and this was about as near a complaint as the father of his country and the father of all his poor relations ever made. In his ledger we find this item, quote, by Miss Harriet Washington, gave her to buy wedding clothes, hundred dollars, It supplied the great man joy to write that line, for it was the last of Harriet. He furnished a fine wedding for her, and all the servants had a holiday, and Harriet and her unknown lover were happy ever afterwards, so far as we know. From 1750 to 1759, Washington was a soldier on the frontier, leaving Mount Vernon and all his business in charge of his brother John. Between these two, there was a genuine bond of affection. To George, his brother was always, quote, dear Jack, end quote, and when John married, George sends, quote, respectful greetings to your lady, end quote, and afterwards, quote, love to the little ones from their uncle, end quote. And in one of the dark hours of the Revolution, George writes from New Jersey to his brother, quote, God grant you health and happiness. Nothing in this world would add so to mine as to be near you, end quote. John died in 1787, and the President of the United States writes in simple, undisguised grief of, quote, the death of my beloved brother, end quote. John's eldest son, Bushrod, was Washington's favorite nephew. He took a lively interest in the boy's career, and, taking him to Philadelphia, placed him in the law office of Judge James Wilson. He supplied Bushrod with funds, and wrote him many affectionate letters of advice, and several times made him a companion on journeys. 
the boy proved worthy of it all and developed into a strong and manly man quite the best of all washington's kinsfolk in later years we find washington asking his advice in legal matters and excusing himself for being such a quote troublesome non-paying client end quote. in his will the honorable bushrod washington is named as one of the executors and to him washington left his library and all his private papers besides a share in the estate such confidence was a fitting good-bye from the great and loving heart of a father to a son full worthy of the highest trust of washington's relations with his brother charles we know but little charles was a plain simple man who worked hard and raised a big family in his will washington remembers them all and one of the sons of charles we know was appointed to a position upon lafayette's staff on washington's request the only one of Washington's family that resembled him closely was his sister Betty. The contour of her face was almost identical with his, and she was so proud of it that she often wore her hair in a queue and donned his hat and sword for the amusement of visitors. Betty married Fielding Lewis, and two of her sons acted as private secretaries to Washington while he was president. One of these sons, Lawrence Lewis, married Nellie Custis, the adopted daughter of Washington, and granddaughter of Mrs. Washington, and the couple, by Washington's will, became part owners of Mount Vernon. The man who can figure out the exact relationship of Nellie Custis' children to Washington deserves a medal. End of section two.